released on Sunday, February 24, 2014, recorded in St. Louis, Missouri. This Agile Life, episode 37, Let's Pretty Shit Up. Get your very own People Work Here t-shirt at booster.com slash thisagilelife. Say it loud and wear it proud. The software industry transforms more and more every day. Agile methods are quickly replacing traditional ones. The question is, are you agile enough? This podcast is devoted to agile and lean software development. Time to welcome your agile coaches on This Agile Life. Hello, everyone. I'm the host of This Agile Life, John Sextro. Joining me today are my co-hosts on Twitter, Adcron, Mr. Amos King. Hey, good evening, John. How's it going, Amos? It's going to be better after we get this complaints out tonight. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait. Also joining us on Twitter, the Agile Factor, Mr. Jason Tice. Good evening, John. It's time to have a sustainable evening talking about Agile. Maybe tonight we can kind of have a personal retrospective for all of our listening audience. <laughs> Somehow I don't think that's on the plan that we just made at the last responsible moment because that's all Amos will let us do. Yes! <laughs> we can kind of pretend like it's a retrospective because, you know, people can listen to this and they can uh, take it in and try and use things that we, we talk about to do better. Well, the, the good news is uh, one thing that I will share that I think, and I'm going to predict the future, Tonight, we're not going to talk about planning. If you want to talk about planning, it's something that Amos and I love to talk about, how we should do it or we should not do it. You should listen to some of our prior episodes, especially number, uh, episode number five, long time ago. That was when uh, Jason and Amos borrowed the podcast, and well, <laughs> we didn't have much of a plan, and we kind of debated that. Ah, uh, yes, I remember that episode. And as a result, John has said we can never do that again. I think... Th- <laughs> I think that was the one where we had no show notes. Yes, we had no show notes. We had no title. We had no nothing. Okay, well, tonight we have all of the good stuff. Let's we go have ahead and plan. get started. We've done, we've done podcast planning, and we have a podcast commitment for success. I don't know if I would quite no, take a, it that far. podcast center of excellence. Oh, oh, <laughs> wonderful. Oh, God. We have prescriptive guidance for a successful podcast tonight. I think I just pooped in my mouth, not puked. It tastes too bad to be puke. <laughs> Jason, you're going to start us off tonight by yeah, playing a little game. Start. I, got, I got an activity for us. So, um, so as you guys know, a couple episodes back, we had Karen Favaza Spencer. She authored the, uh, the Agile A to XP book. It's, uh, it's a book that has very simple definitions and some illustrations about Agile. I've been using this to help coach teams and help provide some reminders of you know, some of the key values and principles within Agile. And so we're going to play a little game here that I've been doing uh, with some teams I'm working with. So I'm going to, I have the book here. I have it in my hand. So since I will enact this, since we're doing, we're doing a podcast tonight, we don't have video. So I'm going to flip the book open to a page at random. I'm going to read the definition for the term that's there. And then we'll talk about it for a few minutes on the podcast here and have a little short discussion. This is an activity that if you're coaching a team, you might want to try. It might come right before, right after stand up, or maybe if the team um, is doing a Pomodoro technique where they change pairs or they change what they're working on and everyone has a break at a common time, it's something to kind of inject a little bit of learning and a little bit of a refresher about some of the key elements of Agile. So here we go. So I'm not looking at the book. I'm going to flip the pages open. I'm going to stop. I'm not looking. Everyone can see me on Skype. I'm not looking. And let's see what I got. Okay, I got N. N is for narrative. So 
what, what the book says is stories are the operating systems of our minds. So human beings have told stories to each other since the prehistoric times. Stories cement tribes together with a common history and common imagery. Agile uses a narrative device called a user story to actively engage the worker in the meaning of each increment of work. The story approach creates a better cognitive experience of the work and a more satisfying emotional experience. What do you guys think? What does that mean? I think it all ties back into communication. Uh, one of the key topics that we constantly come back to on this podcast. And I was doing some reading not too long ago, talking about uh, radical, radical management. And one of the key pieces of advice within that book on radical management was to have rich conversation in the narrative style where it's people sitting down. They're not talking at each other. They're really talking in a way where you're telling that story, which is the term we use in Agile to describe the, the units of work, right? Story, which means there's some narrative there. There's, there's some storytelling that, go, that goes on. And we also use things like system metaphors that are other ways to convey ideas and tell stories about the way the system's going to operate and the way the system is going to be put together that helps the team visualize what it is they're building and how that thing that they're building is going to work. And uh, I think narrative, that narrative style is very port important in communication on a team. The other thing I think, John, that's great about a narrative is it it's something that draws people in. So a lot of times, and, and I'm you know, I've been with teams. I've been uh, even recently at a kind of a, a, a professional group about Agile that we have here in St. Louis. And one of the challenges they say is, you know, it's not having all the players involved in the discussions about the software. So maybe the BAs don't come to the planning meetings. Maybe the UX designers don't see value in, you know, talking to the developers. And I think if, if there is a good narrative that everyone can understand, so it's, you know, it's not complicated, you know, engineering speak, it's a simple story. That is really a very effective means to draw people in to, the, to wanting to contribute to collaboration and to a team project. Amos, what do you think about narrative? Uh, I, I think it's fantastic. I think that most things that we do in, in our job are, are better expressed as narrative. Uh, your code, your tests, those should all be narratives. The, but the day-to-day the -day narrative, uh, I, I think, if you keep moving with that, keeping the consistency of that might be a good way to, to get people to communicate more, like you're saying. Um, and I know that I've had some pretty fantastic team members who were able to carry that and usually through a lot of metaphor when talking about the project and, and what needs to go next instead of the technical terms. Wouldn't you rather, when you're working on a project, be working on something where there's a story that you can tell behind that rather than just some, some words or like bullet points that say, you know, this, 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 and this. It's more interesting if it's a story, isn't it? It sounds like it's more fun. I, I always see people get more engaged when they're dealing with and working with a story where there's this narrative involved rather than just this sort of empty set of bullet points where they have to they're trying to figure out and infer what they're supposed to do next and how it's supposed to interact and how it's supposed to work. So instead of a to-do list, like a, a how, like, like adding personas to uh, your, your workflow. Um, 
by that, I mean like in your stories that you would hang on your board, you have a this type of person, but give them a name. Don't just say a user. Like say uh, technical Bob when he's using the website, you know, he wants to use all these like keyboard shortcuts and everything like that, where the other person would rather have 10 menus. So you can, you can do that with your stories and that engages everybody on multiple levels, more than just the technical level. Well, and and to that point, Amos, the one thing that actually it's in the illustration for this, um, this in the book, and I know on the podcast here, you people can't see the illustration. So great reason to go out and get the eight XP book at agilekindergarten.com. Maybe we should ask Karen if we can put the picture up. Sure, I'll we'll take that, that page. as a, we'll take that as an action <laughs> item. But the uh, she she the illustration calls out that the narrative should convey business value, which I really like because that that to me goes back to really trying to draw people in to say that the reason why we're doing this story is to achieve some value, and that value is really best stated in the language of the business, something that's bringing value to the organization that's sponsoring the project. Absolutely. And it can also, as I said, extend to metaphors about the system and about the components within the system or about the user interface for the system. If you use a metaphor and a story to go along with that metaphor as you're explaining how the user is going to interact with the system and you're able to say, you know, we're going to have things like an Amazon five-star rating system. If I say that to just about anybody, they know exactly what that is, right? There's very little else that I have to say once I've said Amazon five-star rating system to uh, help someone understand how they're going to implement that and what it's going to look like. Or if I tell somebody that I want them to implement you know, an audit history of things that looks like the view of emails within Gmail. That's another thing that you can go and look at and very cleanly understand what that is. And that's sort of a way of telling a story by using metaphors, common frames of reference for people to help them understand and visualize what they're building and what they're doing. Instead of saying it's a one to five rating system that sorts over a confidence interval. Yeah. 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 The other one. <laughs> Or the other one that I've done, and actually on a future episode when uh, when uh, when Lee's able to join us, we should we should ask him the question because um, I did a Lego exercise with a team I'm coaching recently to help them have a definition. So they built a Lego model of their project, and what what it does is if you you can go ask any member of the team, and they all understand what that Lego model means because they built it together, and it's a symbol it's a symbolization of what their what their project is. And so. Uh, but they actually have it in their team area, and after we did it, we put it out there. And what was neat, what happened is people started coming over and asking the team about it because it, it was kind of like a conversation piece. But again, it was a way to draw people together. And if you're in an environment where you have multiple teams, it, it's a way for other teams to understand a little bit more about kind of the business value and the context of these different projects that different people may be supporting. You should have them refactor that Lego model later. Ooh, that would uh, be fun. From, from the yeah. Lego. From the whole, there's a whole, there's a whole body of work out there. It's called Lego Serious Play. Um, it is it is a facilitation technique that I learned a while back. But it, it really talks about how you build a, a a reference product of your project using Legos, and really you should maintain it throughout the life cycle of your product because your product will evolve and change. So I I want to make a, a serious play with bricks that interlock with other popular build brick building systems. So Amos, 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 I'm sorry, I, I know you hate architecture, 
but that's in the architecture space. I call that integration for the sake of integration. And just because <laughs> two things can be integrated doesn't necessarily mean we should. Oh, no, I'm a Lego fan. <laughs> yeah, so keep your Legos. Don't mix your Legos and, and your, jeez, uh, Tinker Toys. Legos and Tinker Toys don't mix. <laughs> I think every well, time you guys said Lego, we have to pay somebody $25. So. Uh-oh, we're in trouble. Sh- well, big football game. So just for reference, we've been talking about this now for about seven minutes. So imagine that uh, imagine you did this on your team. If you're, if you're a scrum master, if you're a coach, or even if you're a team member, you, know, you get the book, you, and every day you just take a few minutes, and you, as a team, you reflect on one of the values and principles in the book. Maybe out of it you get something that's usable. You might find the need for a team, your team to write a working agreement that helps the team understand the importance, in this case of, say, writing a user story or for whatever else you might pull out of the book, if it's about metrics, if it's about your Kanban board, or whatever, you might be able to to find that there's a way to say that the team has a better understanding of their way of working by having these reminders of some of the the real values and principles that are so important to successful Agile teams. Very good, Jason. Thank you for leading us through that Get It Started discussion today on the podcast. All right, why don't we move on and talk about something that I think Amos wanted to speak about tonight, and that is something about tech debt. And I think, Amos, this came from one of your Twitter followers. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Well, same same as the uh, uh, story. Um, Story splitting. Story splitting. Joe Joe Barnes. Uh, We that later after the story splitting conversation, we moved into talking about tech debt. And um, I'm I'm. Curious how, how you guys feel uh, of like, when do you take on tech debt? Like, I think you should only take on tech debt when you don't know you're taking on tech debt and you should fix it as soon as possible. So I, I always joke with people that you can call me the Dave Ramsey of tech debt. Like debt is bad and you should never have it. So Amos, when you say take it on, what you're saying is accumulate it as opposed to when you originally said take it on. I thought you meant go tackle it and and tear it down, tear oh. tear down that tech debt. Oh no, I mean like you add tech debt to the project knowingly. Like, is that ever a thing that you should do? Well, I'm I'm very very against it myself. So so I want to go back and, and to a, a different a little different point, Amos. How do you reach a consensus within your team as to what tech debt even is in the first place? Yeah, maybe we should, for our listeners, Ooh. put out there a little bit of a definition of tech debt, huh? Uh, yeah, why don't we start with that? But then, because this, I'm sure we all have stories we could share that, uh, you know, someone says, hey, I don't need to write tests. I don't need to refactor that. I don't need to care that my code complexity is off the chart. But somebody might care about that. So, so Amos, why don't we give us a definition? It, it's a metaphor, right? So tech debt, I'm not, I'm not even going to read this. I can't. This article is way too big on Wikipedia. I was hoping it would be like just a short little definition. Um, technical debt is is a metaphor for uh, taking on um, software architecture problem or software architecture problems that you have. Uh, your design, the um, things that you use, based based on a lot of different things. Usually, uh, I think lack of understanding. Um, maybe. Oh, oh. Maybe not good tests. Maybe maybe the business is pressuring you to run faster. So you, well, or as stated by Martin Fowler back in October of two thousand three, so over ten years ago, um, technical debt is a metaphor developed by Ward Cunningham to help us think about this problem. 
Uh, in this metaphor, doing things the quick and dirty way sets, up, sets us up with technical debt, similar to a financial debt. And of course, we all know if you go into too much financial debt, you end up in problems. So, and then it, there it goes on and on. We'll put, the, we'll put the definition here in the show notes. But if you, skip, if, you would, if you would always be skipping, say, the refactoring step in your process of write a test, have a failing test, write the code to make the test pass, and then refactor. If you always like skipped the refactor step, don't you think you would be accumulating tech debt possibly? At least have the possibility there? Oh, yeah. To- totally. Totally. I agree totally, John. And um, that, that's just one case where you could be accumulating tech debt. So, Amos, your question to us tonight on the podcast is, when do you take on tech debt knowingly? Right. When is it okay? Um. Because I, I'm very against it. Like, first of all, you don't know when you're going to get to pay it back necessarily. And the more stuff you build on top of it, the harder it is to pay back. It's building interest. That's why the metaphor was debt. And so I, I think it's irresponsible to do it on purpose. Um, and one of the things that I think you should do if you are going to do it on purpose is put a date on it. And at that date, just like your home loan, you have a date on it that says if you don't pay it, you go into default. So on that date, it's fixed or it's the number one priority. This one's hard because this is so um, subjective to identify, first of all, identifying what the tech debt is. And I have, I have a differing range of emotions on this because it, to some extent, I want to get things done. I want them to work beautifully. I want them to appear beautifully. But if they're if the code's not quite as beautiful as it could be, you know, I'm I want the code to be of high quality. I want it the design to be simple. I want it to be a, a very reusable and maintainable. But at what cost? To what end? You know, I fear the whole from the mythical man month book that IT gold plating of getting in there and spinning on something and just perfecting it and to a, to a point at which what is the value? I just, I mean, my, 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 my comment is this is as a, as a retrospective facilitator, I cannot tell you how many retrospectives, you know, where we've literally had a, a you know, a team conflict about what is, you know, what is acceptable, you know, or, and, or I don't always use the term acceptable. It's, this is technical debt. Or this is not technical debt. So where the line is, and I, I have struggled. You know, I've, I don't even know if I've seen a team where they came up with a good working agreement where they could have a consensus about where the line was. Well, and, and I think that that may be true, but uh, if 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 you're if everyone on the team, or at least the pair working on something thinks that they're putting in technical debt. When is it okay for them to say, I know I'm putting in technical debt? doesn't matter well, what that line is. Well, the, the other challenge that I've, that I've bumped into even recently, I mean, is sometimes, you know, you have, peop- you have um, people on a team that maybe they don't have as much experience as others, like yourself, and they don't understand that what they're doing is incurring debt. So there's a, no, there's a, there's a learning that, gap. That's, that's when I said it was okay. The only time technical debt is okay is when you don't know that you're incurring technical debt. That's what I'm saying. 
Okay, but then you can see how Amos, that becomes a pressure cooker. So you and I are pairing on a story, okay? And, and let, let's be fair, you know, you do more development than I do currently. So, you know, you're, you're rocking it out over there, doing all this stuff, refactoring, awesome stuff. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on. We flip the keyboard around. I start doing things a different way, not as good as what you're doing. And, and you know, next thing you know, you and I are at each other's throats because I don't know that what I'm doing is wrong. And unless you communicate with me effectively, this is not going to be productive. And in many teams, it's not a, they, the communication is ineffective. And next thing you know, you've got this, this pressure cooker that is really just being fueled by people not, number one, understanding what technical debt is, either because they haven't talked about it as a team or because there are significant skill gaps between people that have very advanced skills and people then that are very basic and they don't understand how there are different ways to do things that they'll learn over time. So, so if it's not big business and trust, it's communication issues. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think having an argument between two developers is a reason or an excuse to take on tech debt. If you guys have an argument and can't get to the bottom of something, you can always pull in a third party to help you resolve that. I think what we're dealing with is a situation where you, the only reason I could, I could see that you would be okay with taking on tech debt or feel like you needed to discuss taking that tech debt on would be in the case where your back is against the wall uh, with a time constraint and so you're like, let's just do it, get it done, check it in, and then we'll write a story that says, come back and simplify this and take out the tech debt. Otherwise, I can't see why you would knowingly go ahead and create tech debt. But how no, often do you see that story go into the backlog and then get pushed to the bottom and stay at the bottom? Oh, or, until or you're at one point where like half of your backlog is tech debt. And the entire team is doing everything that they can just to keep their head above water. Because I walk into a lot of projects to help out that that's where they are. Yeah, or, or better yet, you know, what? let's tell a story. Because we love narratives and storytelling. Once, <laughs> a, once upon a time, Jason and Amos worked in a lab together. Okay? It was a lab in a land far, <laughs> far away. And this lab had to get a, a, a big milestone release out the door at a specific time. So what did we do? We got the release done. We got it out the door. And afterwards, we were asked to file kind of like a, a make a list of all the things that we knew we needed to fix. So I guess myself and Amos, I think you even gave me a few inputs because I, I was the compiler of the list. And we made this list that had like oh, oh, at least 50 things in it that were, I mean, everything from bugs to some engineering flaws to some, some, you know, some security things that we just didn't get done. So we took the easy way out. I mean, the list went on and on. To this day... That, that whole lab is still in existence, and there are still some of those uh, things on that list that have never been fixed. That was years ago. So <laughs> you should never do this. And this idea that you're going to stop and pay it back, especially if the list is long, it's never going to happen. Uh, my, just, my, my favorite part is whenever you run into a piece of code that has a to-do comment or a fix-me comment, and you look at the date of it, and it's like four years ago. Right. Yeah. And it's still not fixed. And and the code that that comment was near has changed and grown like five or six times and has huge cyclomatic complexities or whatever where they just wrapped a bunch of stuff around that to try to get around all the bugs and the technical debt problems. So they're just building up more and more interest on top of that. I think teams should start with a rule of 
it's never okay to take on technical debt, right? Just put that out there as a baseline. That way, when you come up upon it, everyone knows that, hey, the rule is we're not taking on any technical debt. And then if the team really has their back against the wall for something, then they're going to have to turn around and talk to the rest of the team and say, listen, guys and gals, I know that this is the rule that we don't take on any technical debt, but here's our situation. We're just not going to get this done. We don't take this technical debt on. What should we do? So debt yep. is not an investment. That's my problem. Is I don't even think that at that point I would fight it tooth and nail to the very end. I'm not uh, saying it's an investment at all. I'm saying that well, I, I'm saying that I'm going to the project's going to be in a bad way. Think of it as think of it in a money perspective. Like the company's not going to make payroll if I don't incur debt on my credit card to pay the company, to pay the employees. So I incur the debt so I can meet this deadline of having to pay, make payroll. It's not an investment. I'm mortgaging my future. And, yeah. and hoping yeah. that you didn't choose wrong. Yes, it's a gamble. Right. I, and, well, and or, I think or it's a big gamble. Like, uh, Dave Ramsey, if you into financial stuff, says live now like nobody else so that later you can live like nobody else. Well, everyone else is stressing out about their project because they're in huge amounts of technical debt. If you didn't take on that debt now, then you can kick their ass in the market later. Dave Ramsey doesn't know squat about software. John, the payroll analogy. I want to go back to that because the, um, so there's a book out. I don't know if, I don't know if you've read the Phoenix project um, with, by Gene Kim. And I, I don't think this is a book spoiler, but there's actually a story. There's a part of that book. It's a story. It's a novel about an IT company, and it actually talks about payroll, where uh, the company didn't have a money problem, but they weren't able to do payroll because of an IT glitch, and they ended up not being able to run payroll successfully with current data, and so they didn't run payroll correctly, and they ended up getting uh, they got sued by um, by a union, and then also by some of the employees because they just didn't get paid, and that's illegal. So sometimes you have to do stuff. So how do you handle that? Like back, back when Amos and I worked in the lab, we had to do this release, you know, what it needed to get done, and we had to cut corners at the last minute to get it done. What's, so what is, what's the, how do you get out of that? Can you cut features instead of cutting corners? Well, that's one thing I would say, and, 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 we, and we go back to the Amos and I, once upon a time when Jason and Amos worked in a lab together, uh, we, uh, we actually, I don't think we explored those options as much as we could have or, until, it was, until it was too late to recover. Or do you really have to deliver on that date? Sometimes, yes. That's a tough sell, Amos, to cut features instead of cutting a corner. I mean, how would that's that... Same, same thing, right? How does that I, discussion go with a product owner if you say, I'm sorry, we're not going to be able to deliver this feature for you because we need to improve the internal quality of the code and make it more maintainable for the future? Uh, well, if you haven't taken on technical debt, then you don't have to update the internal quality of the code very much, hopefully. If you're refactoring all along, what I'm saying is at the time that they're like, holy crap, we need these 10 features and we need to have them by Tuesday. And you're like, no. Well, what can we what can we trim off here? Because I can either give you a high-quality product or I can give you a bug-ridden product 
or I can give you one that's going to cost you four times as much to fix later. Can we push this feature off for another week and add these three in and then get that fourth one? Yes, but that's a problem that you caused for yourself by overcommitting to something. Well, and I'm saying sometimes it's not even a commitment. Like they come in and say, we need all these by the end of next week. Okay, and that's unreasonable. I'm not going to be able to deal with that unreasonable situation. I want to talk about the question that you asked, which was, can you cut a feature in, so, that you can, so that you don't have to cut corners in something you're implementing? And if that's what it's down to, I'm saying that that's just a really hard sell. Well, and the other thing, John, that, that we're talking about here, I think this is this is actually where I've seen a lot of groups recently. Um, I, I'll use the term operating at risk because I hear about a lot of scenarios where, like, you know, product owners are in the back room with the business stakeholders making all kinds of deals. Very few of the of the, the very few members of the delivery team are involved in these discussions, and the next thing you know, the product owner has sold something to the stakeholders and the customer that is not achievable. And and my simple. My simple advice is don't do that. The product owner needs to be involved in discussions like this because, you know, hey, we, we can't do that feature in this sprint because we don't have enough time. Or, you know, and the other, the other thing like from the infamous or the infamous story when Amos and I worked in the lab was, you know, what's the feedback loop? So we knew we had more features that we could make within the time that we had communicating that information back to the product owner sooner rather than later. So I think the problem with that, I think there is a definite linkage to technical debt probably being only discussed amongst members of the delivery team without enough awareness and feedback with inputs and outputs from the product owner. And there is definitely a linkage there to try to figure out how to have control that. And a lot of times there's a lack of knowledge on the product owner side that even when you do talk with them about technical debt, they say, oh, I... I understand that, but I really need this feature because it seems more important to them because that background, you've already got technical debt at that point. Yeah, That background thing needing to be fixed, unless it's a visible bug to the end user, they don't see the payoff. They don't see that this next story is taking you a week instead of a day. Yeah. yeah. Well, the other thing that shows that, you know, to this point that, you know, Amos, that, you know, where I support you that, you know, you shouldn't go, you shouldn't go into technical debt. You know, we can go back to talking about narrative from our, our opening exercise to that we did looking at the, the A to XP book. A story should convey business value. And so it's hard to put a technical debt story on your board because it may not inherently convey business value, which to me is just an indication that you should never do that. So my favorite question to ask teams in a situation like this is, how will it hurt you? How will taking on the technical debt hurt you. And the converse of that is how will deferring delivery, an on-time delivery, or deferring the delivery of a particular feature hurt you? Because it's a matter of doing a little bit of analysis there and having that communication, Jason, to your point, with the product owner to weigh those things. I don't think the technical team just gets to make that decision without having this conversation. Yeah, no, I agree, John. I, I, I agree, but unfortunately, the product owner, manager, they have power. They have power over the technical team, usually. Choices in salaries, in raises, in hiring and firing. And so they come to that conversation with a great power. 
that makes a lot of technical people really scared to say no. And, and, and that, that saying is, and no is what needs to happen a lot of times that's not happening. No, I, I agree. I if agree. you say no, you can get a... I, I have a big thing about tell your boss no and, what, and, and profit because I've seen a lot of people do really well in their careers by being the only person willing to stand up. I think that's a bullshit excuse. Well, well, then, Am- what? Amos, Amos, what I was going to say is what what you say is true, but it's also inherently flawed um, because when you are speaking like a realist and saying that there are a lot of um, there's a lot of people out there who you know use either official or either sorry either they use either direct or indirect influence to you know control the outcome of scenarios, which is well, you know. F- Flawed and, and like when I teach agile courses, you know, we talk about roles on an agile team, you know, and, and I'll ask you guys, what's the most important role on the agile team? What is it? Product owner. Wrong. <laughs> it's another test. Okay. Avis, okay, you know it's not one of those. What's what's the most important role on the agile team? Uh that I I I think that they're all like very important. I think that they're equal. Well that's I think they should okay. be. That, that, that's actually, uh, uh, this would be like if you were on Jeopardy, we'd have to like stop recording and have a, a, a judges meeting because that, that's actually the, what I would say is the right answer. Uh, in, the, in the many Agile books, we, people, call that yes! the whole, people call that the whole team. And that is that the whole team, including the delivery team, the product owner, the BAs, the QA, whoever else is on the team, even the architect, they all come together and they agree upon a way of working and what the goal is. And if if you're, you know, if you're a product owner or you're on a team where the product owner and goes off and makes all these deals and commits to releases and and you know and sprint goals without coordinating with the delivery team and with everyone involved, that's not the way the process was designed. So it, don't expect it. it don't expect it to work. I am now buying a round table for my office. So you so, could have a whole team. So nobody the can knife, be at the head. The round table. We're all equal here. No, that's that's what it should be. And I, if it's I am. so, I'm buying a round table. That's why I think the product <laughs> owner is important, Jason, because they have the ability to do things like that. And if they are a bad product owner, it can be very detrimental to a project. Much more detrimental than if you have people, other people on the team that are, are maybe not as good. Yeah, and, and the key thing is that I, what I've learned through the years is that whole team role, not to say there aren't what I call the unicorn teams where it just appears, but that role needs to be supported. I mean, that's where I know, we, I know we've talked about Scrum a lot. We're not going to talk about Scrum tonight that much. Maybe a little bit, Amos. Here we go. I mean, that's the, <laughs> the, I mean, first of all, somebody needs to ensure that the whole team is supported and the whole team is enabled to work together. If it's the product owner, if it's the Scrum master, if it's the tech lead, it, it doesn't matter, in my opinion, but somehow something needs to happen to ensure that that role of the whole team is, is promoted and the team has a way of working that embraces the idea of a whole team and making decisions you know, that everyone agrees upon based upon consensus. The other thing that I think is key to this, and going back to some of our discussions earlier about technical debt, there's a direct correlation between team size and the ability for a team to manage technical debt. A smaller team, you know, ideal size for a self-managing team is five to seven people, is going to be able to come to consensus and establish a way of working about what technical debt is much easier than a large team. 
And back in the, the, infamous, uh, the infamous story now where once upon a time Jason and Amos worked in a lab together, that whole endeavor where we had that huge list of technical debt, that entire lab had, I mean, probably, a, what, maybe 40 people working in it. And because of that, there was no consensus about what was technical debt, what was not. And, you know, we have a big list that proves that just doesn't work. Okay, I want to go back to something, Jason. You, you take a breath there for a moment because you, you oh. said a mouth, mouth. Yes, I know. And, and I see you wrote it in the notes because I got my big note here did not make my favorite alliteration error tonight. I've made it, I think, three times now. So thank you for reminding me. And I want to go back to when I said that the thing Amos said was bullshit because I think we, sh- I think we, need, to dis- I think we need to have it out around that topic. So what Amos said was, You're okay, Can I moderate? No, you're, you're bullshit. bullshit. Your face is bullshit. Yeah, you can moderate, Jason. The comment that Amos made was that because the product owner and the manager have power over us, we can't have transparent conversations with them about decisions that need to be made in regards well, to cutting. I didn't say we couldn't because I have all kinds of transparent conversations with the managers that I had had in the past. And I believe that I was successful because I was far more transparent than anyone else. Because I don't pretty shit up. I don't have time. And neither do you. So let's not waste each other's time. Let's get down to the bottom of it. <laughs> well, why was, why was that a comment within your set of Be- arguments? Because I power? see that frequently. Like you, you brought up that they, they need to have that conversation. And what I'm saying is that people aren't saying no enough. I think that you should fight technical debt until fine like till you're at the point where it's like okay let's do it i agree and are are you guys oh go ahead i was saying i agree and i wanted to know if you guys had heard of the 10 commandments of the eagle list programmer because one of those 10 commandments and we'll i'll put a link to the 10 commandments in the show note because that's something that i try to live and breathe as a as a developer, are those Ten Commandments? Next show on those. Yeah, we should. <laughs> One of them is fight for what you believe in, but be prepared to lose. Yes. And and having that conversation is fighting for what you believe in, but you can't fight so hard for it that it seems like you're inflexible and we'll, we may talk about this in our next show, a douchebag, because... <laughs> well... Because you won't listen to anyone else's side of the argument. Or the people work your episode. You know, conflict and, and debate is actually good on a team. That's where innovation comes from. But you have to understand that you're not always going to get your way. Exactly the point. So fight for what you believe in, but be prepared to lose that battle. And if you're a manager, I've heard this happen a few times with people who are fighting for what they believe in and the manager has turned and said, it's not your place here. That is like the biggest amount of poison you can put on a team. I watched three or four people walk out of a pretty high functioning team because of this. They just, that was, they all turned in two weeks within the next month. But, but that, but again, Amos, that's inherently flawed and it breaks the idea of the whole team and, and really the role of, management or or leadership in that whole team and that's this idea of and actually we, that's fine i talked about this earlier in a different group earlier this week it's it's uh from management 3.0 
you know, Jurgen Appello talks about the idea of, you know, what's the role of leadership and management? He uses the analogy of a garden for the team. And so, you know, the team is a garden and it's, it's like a walled garden. And the, within that garden, the team should be empowered to make decisions, self-manage, innovate, collaborate, and be successful. And leadership and management really need to stay out of the garden. Leadership and management responsibility is to water the garden so the garden will grow by giving it the support and advocacy it needs, but they don't go in there and get in the weeds. But what you're describing is the environment, which again, it's out there. It's one of those dirty, agile secrets that, you know, we, that we sometimes we choose to ignore, but it's when leadership or management jumps in the garden and kind of you know, pretends like they're a member of the whole team, which they're really not. Isn't there a role there for a servant leader, though, to jump into that garden to help pick out, pluck out some of those weeds, to help the garden be more fruitful, to help people be able to do a better job of their self-organization? Because as a servant leader, I am not going to stand by and watch my team self-organize themselves into a corner that they can't get out of. Yeah, but it, but in that case, Jen, like if you're the servant leader and like say you're the scrum master, that's where I'm considering you a member of the whole team. What Amos is talking okay. about was when there's you know someone who's more has a let's say a supervisory role over the over the teams or over multiple teams, they are not a member of the whole team because they're they're in management, but then they involve themselves excessively in really the team's business. When in reality, they need to stay out of that and let the team self manage. And trust that the team will be successful and maybe provide advocacy and guidance, but not tell the team what to do. And it's important for a team to have someone who is a leader within the team that can try and put up some shields, some barriers, some force fields to help keep those forces at bay. You're never going to be able to completely stop them in most cases, but if you can slow them down some, if you can filter out some of those comments, if you can filter out some of those demands, then that's going a long way to cut down on the noise that the team has to deal with from those groups. Yeah, no, I, I agree totally. And, and the only thing that I'd say, even though now we're, now we're on a leadership tangent, is, the, uh, is this, this idea of that uh, the leader, there's, there's the leader of the team, and the leader of the team, if, if that person has that name, they need to remember that they should execute the duties of leadership within the mindset of a servant leader, which really means, at least in my opinion, simplified definition is, as you said, John, you're the person there who's looking out for the best interests of the whole team, and you're helping the team work together and reach decisions by facilitating leadership, not, be, not by being a dictator and telling the team what to do. What can I do to make your job simpler today? That's a great question. That in, that in a nutshell is what you want your servant leader to do, right? Yep. Answer that question and then do those things. Uh, so I spent, I spent 13 years in the military and, and led guys, and I've been a technical manager before um, and now running my own business. And I feel like my job is, uh, I'm going to use the, the term that I heard from an old sergeant that I had was, I'm a shit umbrella. <laughs> my job is to pile the team under that umbrella and keep the shit from falling on them. I push the shit back uphill and and I filter it out and and turn complaints into nice things for the team. I like that a lot. Amos is a shit umbrella. 
And and again, that I, better not be the show title. <laughs> of course it is. And, and again, all, all kidding aside, including weird names for which our children will never be able to listen to this episode of The Sagittal Life until they're old enough yep. to understand profanity. My wife will kill me even if they were 25 and listen to this. Really? <laughs> well, all I can say is if you are, it, it, I like that, Amos, because that's a very simple way that if you are the leader of an Agile team, be it you're, you're a tech lead, a team lead, a scrum master, a coach, whatever, whatever your name or whatever the name of your role may be, that's a simple question that you should ask yourself as you go about your day to see if you're doing what's right for the team. And the key thing to say to that is it's, you know, you know, what can I do to help you as a team? And the only thing that's really, in my opinion, not a valid answer is you shouldn't say, well, I'm going to tell you what to do. So we started with technical debt. We talked about when do we take on technical debt, which we agree is never, um, and when to pay it back. I have one kind of... Wait a second. I don't agree that it's never. I agree no, that no, it's... No, I think we start it never. You start And then it when never. John says, let's take on some technical debt, Amos says, F you, John. Yeah. <laughs> and then we have to have a retrospective because we have a big team conflict. Great. Hey, so let me... I so think a retrospective me... is a fantastic place to decide whether it's okay to take on a piece of technical as I mentioned, I've worked with some teams where we've had, you know, crazy retros, uh, let alone, you know, big, big, literally call them fights in the war room, you know, big heated arguments about technical debt, can't decide what to do. I think one of the reasons that happens is because, again, we don't have a good definition of what technical de debt is. We don't have any hard data about it. We don't have any, you know, you know, solid metrics. So I want to talk about code complexity and this idea of saying, you know, get a tool Measure, measure the cyclomatic complexity of your code. Just you know, get a tool. There's, there's a bunch of them out there that do it. You got to pay for some. Some are free. And use that as a baseline. And then, if anything, as a team, reflect on that and say, hey, do we need to do something to, to reduce the complexity of our code? The theory being, if our code is less complex, it's easier to maintain. There's less delivery risk. And perhaps we have less technical debt. Good idea. Bad idea. Dumb. A simpler design is always better. But simple is not easy, right? It's, it's often hard to take a concept and make it and implement it using simple concepts. You sound like Rich Hickey. <laughs> I don't know I'm who just, that is. I'm just, I'm just looking for a way, like especially coaching teams. And, and actually, I've have, I have worked with, talked to a couple of people who are trying this as an experiment to say, you know, go, go you know, okay, you're on, a, you're on a project, you're on a legacy project, you have an established code base. Go measure the cyclomatic complexity of your code. So just pick a tool, use it, run it, get the number. And then talk about it as a team. And then make a team working agreement or a goal to try to reduce the complexity. And as you work to reduce the complexity, you'll have the tool you can run. You can see what happens. Then reflect upon that as a team and ask yourself, are you feeling less pain? Is it easier to complete stories? Maybe your cycle time to develop a story goes down. I don't know, but... The key thing is you're starting to have a discussion that's based upon some hard data. Hey, I can I can develop a lot of stuff real fast with copy and paste. It's not cyclomatic complexity, but okay. So cyclomatic complexity, but so you know, and duplication. Can we add both of those? Yeah, totally. Okay, Actually, okay. most of the tools out there, when they run, if you run like I know SonarQube, but you run a when you run a code complexity report, it accounts for duplication in that. So it okay. has kind of a roll-up, and that's where, again, some of the tools, and I don't want to get into a tool debate about this, but I think the key is to get away from all of these subjective and qualitative discussions about technical debt 
And if you can infuse some metrics into that, which are based upon quantitative data, you can start to have more constructive discussions. Agreed. I agree. I, with, I, I agree. I, I'm agreeing with Tice way too much. Well, I, I agree with that also. And I think having those metrics, having some quantitative measures to look at and to start a discussion is good. What I'm, what I'm not in favor of necessarily is having a bunch of rules that, you know, the architecture group or no, managers that's dumb. Hey, I'll with. be the architecture that says that's dumb. I Thank want you because what things that I've learned about metrics in the last few years, it's all about baselines and it's about trends. So if, and if anything, you're in an environment with multiple teams. You know, if you're, if you're the manager that says, hey, all my teams should have the same metrics. Yes, it will be awesome. That's a flawed assumption unless you have the exact same people on every one of your teams, which I don't know of an organization out there that has that. Amos, you know what happened there? He was channeling the big enterprise architect guy again. I think oh, he was. We had extreme makeover of the big enterprise architect guy. So he's, he's, he's dead. He's little nimble agile Jason now. Holy crap. I don't know what happened to him. I think too many, too many episodes with, with me, both of us have changed. Oh, yeah. We've, we'll get Amos, Amos King. You are an enterprise architect. You just don't know it. Shh, don't tell anybody. You're going to build a big architecture runway in the scaled agile framework. Next thing you know, <laughs> it's the death knell of the big enterprise architect. Okay, guys, I think we should wrap up at that point. Very good discussion. Very passionate discussion. I love the passion and uh, I love the, the content and the information. Well, hey, John, I, I just have John, to say, remember, rem well, shut up, Tice. <laughs> remember, if you do decide to take on some technical debt, Please put a story in with a debt for the pay down or a date for the pay down and stick to it. I will do that, sir. And John, I hope you like Barry Manilow. Why is that? Because he talks about music and passion. Oh, um, I don't know. I don't know that song. You're not a Barry Manilow fan. Wow. I'll, okay. I'll, I'll YouTube it. Maybe that can be one of your picks tonight. That might really hurt your man card cred rating have a Barry Manilow pick this comes from the guy that teaches yoga no oh, wait this is not John Sextro that teaches yoga this is Tice <laughs> yes Tice <laughs> teaches yoga so whatever our first pick tonight is from Amos what do you got Amos alright because of our, our story splitting episode with Joe Barnes that uh, started it. Joe took what um, happened during our episode back to his team, and he ended up writing a blog post about it. And since uh, the name of the episode was Spam Amos, he he wrote a post called I Spammed Amos. Um, it's, it's all about splitting the story. So I think that uh, that would be, be one pick um, that I think he did a pretty fantastic job, and I'm really glad that, that we were able to Help help out a team like that, and hey, Amos, then uh, my other pick, Amos. I think you're internet oh. Amos. You're internet famous now. Amos just wants to get a coaching gig in New Zealand. Whoa, New Zealand. He's, he's not in New Zealand. He's in Alabama. He oh, just, he just if, yes, if, you, if you read his uh, the whole thing together, it says Otis pros and cons. Did you notice that? That's the URL. Pros and cons. P r o s e a n d dot c o dot n z. Pros and cons. That's um, very I, clever. Yeah, I thought it was pretty awesome. 
And then uh, I'm going to get this guy's name wrong, but uh, my other pick is Agile Product Ownership in a Nutshell. It's a video out on YouTube by uh, Henrik Kinenberg. I think it's Nyberg. Nyberg is the yeah, case silent. Um, it's Henrik or Heinrich. Heinrich. Heinrich, Heinrich it, Nyberg. It was, it's just a, like a fantastic little video about, about product ownership and Agile. It's entertaining. He draws pictures. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, and it was suggested to me by our good friend, Brian button. And, uh, I, I bookmarked it and I've shown it to like six people in a week. That's great. Amos. Good picks. And Joe Barnes is officially on the top of our list as number one fan of the show. Woo. Joe even went and bought a t-shirt. Wow. How do you get on that list? If you want to buy a t-shirt t-shirt, Jason, you just go to booster.com slash this agile life. Or you no, can want, go read Joe's article and click the link to it. I want to be our <laughs> super fan. I want to be a super fan. Well, you have to talk to us a lot on Twitter. Oh, I got some. I'm Twitter. I'm Twitter. You can tweet us at, at this agile life. I got some picks. Jason, so, what are your picks? So something that, and again, kind of underscored by our activity we did starting tonight with the 8XP book. The Agile space is pretty confusing these days. There's lots of different interpretations, and there's a value for ensuring that people have a good understanding of key principles, terms, and values. So I did put the uh, I did pick the uh, Martin Fowler definition of technical debt, a great thing perhaps to reflect upon as a team and think about maybe you need some working agreements or a way that your team understands what technical debt is so you best understand when you're incurring it and when you're not. The other thing, so that, that link is it will be in the show notes. The other uh, thing I'll pick since the theme of the night is let's pick videos about product owners. Uh, I found, I actually, um, I'm a fan of the Agile product ownership in a nutshell myself. But there's also a new video I found. It's called The Process. And it's a little bit of a story about a, a product owner uh, kind of going wrong. Um, and they attempt to, uh, let's just say, design a better stop sign. And the, uh, the results uh, are hopefully something that would guide a product owner to show here are the anti-patterns that you want to avoid so as to help your team be most successful. So fun little video to watch. It's about four minutes, and uh, I think you'll have a good laugh with it. Great. Thanks for the pick, Jason. My pick tonight is a simple one. It's something that I have been using a lot lately. It's called Code School. Got the link in the show notes, but you don't need the link. Just go to codeschool.com. It's a great little website with lots of uh, entertaining tutorials on things like Ruby, Ruby on Rails, JavaScript, Node.js, iOS development. And I've been wanting to brush up my JavaScript, CoffeeScript, and Node.js skills. So I've been out there going through those uh, classes and tutorials, and they've just been great. So I encourage you to check it out and uh, learn something new. All right, guys, that's all we have time for today. Thanks for joining me on the show. For all of our listeners, please check out thisagilelife.com for these show notes and all of our past episodes. Thanks for listening, and keep living this Agile life. This Agile Life is brought to you by a community of Agile developers and coaches aspiring to spread the word about this groundbreaking approach to software development. Join us at thisagilelife.com forward slash community.